welcome to Sam Biko, SM Biko, uh, also known as Smash Biko, also known as Sam Biko, also known as, you know, the the one keeping everything together and on track. Um, in my, you know, kind of circle, uh, you know, person who's got it figured out. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't no. feel that way, perhaps. Incorrect. Um, well, I'll... I'll continue to be a killer for people, but I know the truth. <laughs> but Sam, uh, in terms of her publishing history, uh, you know, published her first novel uh, quite young, um, Lake in the Library. And then, uh, correct me if I kind of screw it up here, Sam, but you followed that up with a trilogy of young adult novels, mm -hmm. um, wrote and drew a comic series, uh, Campus is My Boyfriend, You've done, uh, I'm trying to think how many issues, but you've done a, a full trade of them uh, that I've mm -hmm. got. Uh, mm -hmm. And you've done a lot of other things, of course, but then your next kind of big, big thing on the horizon here is a five book series. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that new series, maybe. And I know a lot of people are interested in writing a series mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, sort of wh what you kind of came out with, like that one solo standalone book. Uh, so I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about what that new series is, maybe kind of how it compares to your old series, just for starters. Sure. Um, so that's a great start. Um, this new series that's coming out, it's not, it's not new. It's not like it came out of nowhere. Um, the first book is called The Stars of Mount Quix. Um, the basic log line for the book, uh, that book, and for the series is... Um, it's a it's fantasy that takes place in a world that's kind of like our own, but isn't. It's a, a world called Brindle Watch. Uh, the series is called the Brindle Watch Quintet. And uh, so there is magic, there are monsters, and there are the people who befriend them and kind of help them um, with their with their conflicts and with their challenges. Uh, the in the the era that this world kind of takes place in is sort of 1940s-esque and there is an overarching great war going on, um, but it is still that fantasy adventure sort of feel. Uh, now this book, I wrote a first draft of the Stars of Mount Quix after I wrote The Lake in the Library, which I wrote when I was 16 and I'm 33, <laughs> I think now. Um, I wrote that, I wrote Lake and Library in high school as kind of an experiment. And then I just kind of kept writing and I wrote this draft of the Stars of Mount Quix. It was a hundred pages, it was not very good. And I put it away in a virtual trunk. That's kind of uh, what a lot of writers refer to as just some place you shove a work that you're not ready to finish or kind of the energy on it peters out and you just put it away. Uh, and then in the middle of kind of working on the Realms of Ancient series, which is this chunky, extremely long uh, series that I was working on. I pulled out the Stars of Mount Quix because I was kind of thinking of the future and I had become a completely different writer by this point. Um, when you write like this series that I just showed you, it's over 480,000 words. It's extremely complicated. It's very dark, has very mature themes for young adult. And I was looking kind of to write something or work on something a little lighter, almost as just a way to exercise the series out of my system. Uh, so I pulled out quicks and I was like, you know, the story in this is still, it's kind of still an interesting little story. So I think I'll just work on this. And I redrafted it. And what was really interesting is that I came off of this really long series where the books were extremely lengthy and uh, Quicks came in at about 80,000 words, which is uh, quite a bit shorter for me. Uh, it was more quippy, it was more fun, it had more romance in it, and it was just like this great little adventure. And I was just like, I feel like I couldn't have written the, the book the way it is now um, unless I had worked on and completed all these other really complicated books before it and then I kind of was like oh you know I really like this world that I've built so I planned out sequels and I just did it very loosely I made up titles that I was like not really married to and then I I wrote fake marketing copy and I just kind of again put 
all of that away in a trunk until ECW came to me and was like, so what else do you have? And I sent them that. And uh, I, was, I was shocked when they signed The Realms of Ancient, the trilogy, because they signed it sight unseen. I hadn't written the sequels yet. That's a whole story I won't get into right now. Um, so when we were chatting about the Brindle Watch Quintet, I had already had this little roadmap. And I said, yeah, well, so here's Quicks. They liked it. Um, that was nice. But I was like, well, I, I've also developed four sequels. And I know five books is too much. That's too much to ask for. So I know that you'll probably only maybe want three. And they were like, no, no, we'll take all five. <laughs> we'll do it all at once. And that kind of comes from building a relationship with the publisher that can trust you to deliver and trusts in your work. And again, I was very shocked and the shock never really wears off because as you know, Jonathan, and as maybe some folks on this um, call, uh, being a writer, being a creative person, you are always doubting yourself. You will be like 90 and probably have written like 50 books and you're still like, mm, I don't think I got another one in me, but you do. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of how this, this series came about, but I know a lot of people think, um, when you think of an author and you think of that fantasy of being a, being a career writer, that they just, the, the ideas just come out and the deals just happen. But, you know, I drafted Quicks, the first draft in 2000 and 2010. And it's 2022 now, and the book isn't coming out until 2023. So some of these things have long tails and you just kind of have to, sometimes just putting it away is the best move until you can uh, you find a home for it. You bring up a couple of really interesting things. One, one thing I want to just kind of jump into briefly is um, that doubting yourself. You, you know, I actually don't doubt myself ever as a writer. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I don't have faith in other people. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's almost like the inverse of that scenario. Like I'll doubt myself in other areas, but I feel like I've got it sewn up with writing, but I don't have like faith in other people so much and like the ability of someone else. Not that I'm, a, I think I'm a genius or anything, but just like objectively, like I'm a good writer. Side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like it's a fine, it's a good book. I'm a good writer. Like I can see and I can pick it apart what's good and bad about it and so on. I'm mm -hmm. pretty analytical that way, but uh, I know that it's a, like I'll have my hurdles in other areas uh, that are like the other psychological hurdles connected to it and so on. And I do feel like that you're all of it's in the same realm though, of kind of getting in your own way. You know, it's hard not to get into your own way as a writer, mm -hmm. uh, like the benefit of it as a career is that no one can fire you. Right. <laughs> but, and you have like this control and this ability writing is a field where you can just really make something out of nothing you know, mm -hmm. in, in a way that you can't in other areas. Like if you want to make, be an actor, you know, you got to get hired by somebody to be in their movie or whatever. Like there's, there's people have to give you permission. Whereas mm -hmm. in writing, you don't, you can kind of just create those things and those opportunities for yourself to a certain degree uh, to the, and even with technology. Now you can even publish yourself and no one else is going to publish you mm -hmm. though. It may not be the best idea, but um, uh, I, I feel like the big the flip side of that, though, is it's so much easier to get in your own way uh, and to, you know, even if you have a belief in yourself at your core, you still may just not know how, what to do, like, uh, or and it can be very mystifying. It's a very mystifying industry mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and as you say, there's this impression uh, that people make it at a certain point. You know, I remember just to your point, I remember distinctly being uh, with my first book, I was trying to get it published and um, no, everyone was rejecting it with these really kind of rejection letters. You know, they were like just praising how great they, they thought it was and they were rejecting it. And I remember distinctly one rejection letter after like two, three years of this, I got a rejection letter from a publisher that said, um, you know, we, we're in the habit of publishing books that we don't think other people are going to publish, you know, that really are, we want to give books a chance that have never, maybe aren't going to get a chance elsewhere. And we just know other people want to publish this book. And, and I really was like, 
<laughs> I assure you, no one else wants to publish this book. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's been years yeah. and years and years, you know? Yeah. Um, and even after I'd published a bunch of books, I remember just for my last book, uh, I, I had sent it to the publisher. I'd done three other books with at that point or two other books with at that point. And I was just like, I spent nine months just begging them to reject it. Like, please, you know, send me a, re a rejection even. That's fine. Just so I want to send it to someone else if you're not going to mm -hmm. take it, you know? Yeah. And like, they really wanted to do it, but they can't, you know, like they got to make the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so even if you're quote unquote making it, uh, and mm -hmm. you've got publishers who believe in your work and maybe you're winning awards. And, you know, mm -hmm. even if you're selling books, it's still like every time you're ha you have to break down that wall because the world changes around you. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, it's just a tentative, difficult business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you bring up that relationship aspect. Uh, I, I really would like to just before we go on to other things, talk a bit more about that. You know, mm -hmm. what do you think are some of the things that a writer can or should do or just be aware of when they're developing a relationship with the publisher? Like how can they, um, so one, what are some of the red flags uh, when you're developing a relationship with the publisher uh, that maybe isn't going well uh, or, or might not go well? Uh, and then two, like what are the things you can do as a writer to kind of make that relationship the best relationship you can and uh, like come at it in a way where you, you're not acting entitled, but you're still serving your best interests. Yeah, I think that number one, uh, having an awareness of the industry is kind of key. Um, you don't have to be like me and have to have a postgraduate in book publishing, which is uh, what I did. I did my, um, my literary degree and I was shopping around a book and I was also taking a postgraduate program in the industry. And it was really eye-opening to just kind of, uh, be that fly on the wall. I, you, I kind of felt like a double agent because I was an author trying to get into the industry, but I was also trying to become a person in the industry, uh, which I did do for many years. And uh, kind of the number one thing um, in the years that I have done like panels and workshops and presentations and talk to people um, is that they aren't really aware of how the publishing industry works. They think that they write a book, they send it in, someone loves it, they make a ton of money and they can just do this for a living. They aren't aware of how money is allocated within a publisher and how resources like people and how difficult it is to even get your work in front of someone because of just the enormous backlog of people getting in there. Um, and that basically for any writer, it all comes down to luck and it comes down to who sees your work and if it's the right time in the industry if your work kind of touches on an emerging trend or one that has been profitable. Um, so kind of just like maybe taking publishing 101 or even listening to the various podcasts out there with tons of free material on how publishing works. But to be very basic about it, publishing is a consignment industry um, and it's a loss leader. So it doesn't, it's not very profitable. So per unit, um, a publisher makes 3% and that number is probably much less and that is not accounting for the pandemic either, which has really struck publishing in a bad way. So what that means is uh, for every one copy, the publisher makes a 3% profit on it, which is nothing. Um, the, the next loss leader in, the economy of like consumerism is fashion, which actually they uh, only make 5% per each piece of clothing that they sell. So the lifespan of this book, it they the publisher gives me money. They give me what's called an advance against royalties. And sometimes uh, for the level that I'm at, it's not super high. It's kind of like getting a grant. And the advance is that, um, they expect me to sell at least that amount of money before this starts turning a profit in, in books. So once I've earned that out, then I start earning a percentage on this. But the publisher has paid me for the temporary um, privilege to produce my work and sell it and make money off of it. Um, they've paid me, they've paid the editors, they've kept tried to keep all their lights on, then they pay to print the book, then they pay to market it, 
and they put a ton of effort into just getting it uh, in front of reviewers and et cetera. And then when it hits the shelves, if it doesn't sell, no matter the fact that they've done absolutely everything they possibly could, um, the book will sit in a warehouse, which they have to pay to store. They also have to pay the, the truck, the, the company to ship the books across the country to get them into stores and it could still not sell. And then if they have so many copies of it, they have to pay to destroy them because it's cheaper to destroy them than it is to store them. And that is the lifespan of any book. Um, by the time you see a book in the sales section of a major bookstore, like in Indigo, that the author doesn't get a royalty from that. The, the books have been sold for pennies um, to get rid of as many as they can to wholesalers which is the sales section of a bookstore. And they have taken, a, the publisher has taken a loss on it. Now, so from, every, from that very quick kind of idea of the way the industry works, publishing is gambling. The publisher is gambling on you and betting that you're going to earn them some money. Not a ton, just enough so that they can keep making books and keep getting voices out there and continue their work of building up um, the creative industry. To offset this, publishers will apply for grants. So if your book becoming part of their stable aids them in getting grants, then that also works to their benefit as well. And this all sounds like a game. And you're right, it is a game. Business is a game, publishing is a business. So when you go in with your eyes open, and I'm published by a mid- range publisher. So there's a small indie kind of at the bottom. They put out very few books a year, but they're very tightly curated and they really aim for awards, uh, low print run, and they have a loyal base. And then there's mid-range, which is where I'm with ECW. They put out probably 50 to 75 books a year. Um, they are aiming to sell, uh, make most of their money by selling into libraries and selling um, like movie rights and doing series. And then up here is the Penguin Random Houses, which are called uh, multinationals because they have, they have publishers in tons of different countries and in tons of different markets. They publish thousands of books a year with huge print runs. Those are the, the authors who get in with them. You often can't get up here without an agent. Uh, which is also in itself a whole other submission process and also very difficult. And I don't have an agent. So I've published this many books and I have this five book deal and I still am not considered a, like a big hot ticket item to an agent, which would allow me to access that bigger distribution and more money and more sales. I still can't get there. So I am, I'm still trying. I'm not going to give up but it is difficult. And the one thing I actually didn't mention in my whole spiel about publishing is that the, the reason it's a consignment industry is that these are returnable. So what that means is if ECW sells a bunch of these to Amazon because they are a bookseller and Amazon doesn't sell them and they wanna liquidate this, like, this money pit, they will send it back to ECW for credit, which means that Amazon doesn't have to pay for them for the copies that they don't sell. And they get shoved back into the inventory with ECW and ECW goes, well, how are we gonna sell these now? So uh, that is kind of what makes it, makes it tough uh, to be in the industry. So how do you combat that as an author? Uh, and you want to build a really good relationship with the publisher who's been kind enough to take you on and is taking a risk on you, be informed and know that you, the author, are going to be kind of uh, sailing the ship. Um, you have to be the one willing to do the promotion uh, to really push into um, you know, your group of friends, your family, uh, to be willing to go and do events, to go and do public speaking, public readings, to meet people um, and with the book in your hand and say, you know, this is my book. This is why it's great. Please buy it. And sometimes you will be investing your own capital into doing that. 
into visiting various bookstores, um, into developing relationships with your local libraries. Um, libraries are great because they buy the books and they're non-returnable. So it's amazing. Please support libraries. Um, if you can't afford to buy the books of authors that you like, ask your library to order them. That is huge for authors. Um, but so when you come in prepared to, with, to a publisher and you say, I'm willing to do this work, I'm willing to promote the book, I understand the way the industry works, um, that, that makes them be able to be like, oh, I can rely on this person. Um, you know, this is a good, this is a good buy. Like we're doing a good business here with this author because they're willing to kind of go and pound the pavement like Willie Loman but with a happy ending. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the way that, for example, the way I have promoted my books is I've gone to comic conventions and I set up a table and I sit behind the table for 36 hours over like a long weekend and I hand sell the book and I meet people. And even if I don't sell the book, they've had an interaction with an author and that's really important to them. And they'll talk about it to other people and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't just do it once, I do it forever. Because this book, although it came out in 2017, if it hasn't been seen by the person who's come to my table, it's new to them. So you have to kind of just be willing to go to bat for this thing that you sat and spent hours working on. Um, you can't just, this is not the 1970s where you write a book and then you just get to live in your cottage by the sea and you just wait for the money to roll in because the publisher is putting out ads and um, they're doing all the work for you. That is not that, this is not the world of that. And it hasn't been for a very long time. And some people are shocked to hear that, but the writing the book is the easy part and it's not easy um, because then uh, if you have a publisher relationship, you have to sell it. And like you mentioned, Jonathan, you can also choose to do it all yourself and you can imagine how much work that is that is a full business that that's the thing people business. miss yeah they, they they want to be writers and they say they're going to self-publish their book and i say okay but do you want to be a publisher or a writer because yeah. often they don't realize when they self-publish that they're signing up to become a publisher mm -hmm. they think about it as a writing activity and it's not um, and so I have nothing against it there's there's a great way to do that uh, but it is a different business fundamentally. What I find so fascinating, Sam, before we kind of move on to a couple of different things, but you, you phrased something in a way I've never heard it phrased before, and it made so much sense. What I've always found baffling about publishing is that it is operating as a lost leader industry. Uh, and normally how a lost leader works is, you know, like you get the Canadian Tire flyer, you open it up and it says, you know, oh, you know, batteries are you know, $2 for a 20 pack and you're like, Oh, uh, batteries. And you go down to Canadian tire. Now they are losing money on that. They're making no money or losing money on the batteries you buy. But once you're in the store, you'll buy something else, presumably something that worth more than batteries where there's a higher profit margin. But I find so fascinating and baffling about publishing as an industry is there really is, it's a lost leader books, but there's nothing else that they're backselling you. The closest mm -hmm. thing they have is film rights the closest thing, but they don't even have something else, but that's like a different customer entirely. You know, you're not walking to a bookstore and buying the film rights to a book. Uh, so once you're in that bookstore, the bookstore can sell you something else, but the publisher has nothing better and more higher profit margin to sell you. It's a baffling it's industry in that respect. Whereas, yeah. you know, being a writer, you and I, uh, writers who are published by publishers, we have, maybe we're making no money on these books, but uh, the cultural cachet of being an author is something mm -hmm. you, that you can monetize uh, and you can make much, I mean, it's not easy, but you can make, you know, money and have a career uh, with books as a lost leader in your own kind of personal writing business. Now, yes, again, easier said than done, sell. but. Yeah, exactly. Because you as the writer can sell um, motivational speaking or consulting or editorial services, if that's something that you have uh, sought training for um, as part of your, your development. Um, so there are other things that you can sell to people and then, or you can go, Read here's an example. Yeah. yeah, I like, I did a workshop at the library. The library paid me 150 bucks to do it. Um, all I did was talk about 
publishing. And I just talked about what it is. And then I talked about self-publishing and I had my books as an example. And then at the end of the, the workshop, people asked me to buy them, even though I wasn't standing there so that I could sell them. It was just, they wanted to take something away. Well, even um, right so now, the, the university is going to pay you for visiting this class. Like mm -hmm. there's a, there's things that you can sell as a writer. Uh, publishers haven't really figured that out weirdly, other than the film right thing, which they're so dependent on film rights. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing I'll say um, before we move on in defense of self-publishing is that self-publishing, I think is going to be the future because I agree, yeah. people are following the author. They want to be a part of the author's brand, not necessarily the publisher's brand. Penguin has sort of, you know, created like this aesthetic, like, oh, I want my penguin books. I want my penguin bag. I want to go to the penguin store. Um, but, you know, if I am really into an author, I'm going to just buy that author's books, no matter who's publishing them. And um, creating a brand around yourself because you are the writer and you are the creator and you are the idea factory that people enjoy. I think that is where this is, this is probably going to end up going or publishers are going to step back in terms of their visibility and they're just going to build brands. They're trying, they try to, and they have for many years, which is why there is such a focus on series. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, like self-publishing is very difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's a difficult, expensive. You really have to come into it like any business with a cash injection of capital before you start and your eyes wide open. Um, and it is a ton of work, but you are keeping the profit um, and you are the, the driving force. So that is kind of the main difference is that publishers try to create a catalog to capture a huge wide net of an audience and a self-published author has their very um, focused audience who they're selling to and they can just keep selling and the um, they never have to as a self-published creator you never have to worry about the, the little tiny window of time that your book is new which is about six months to nine months it's not even that that long anymore I used to say a year and it's not because there's just so many books coming out every single week um, and you kind of lose momentum. Um, but with self-publishing uh, or owning all the rights to your work, you can just sell them forever. So, so yeah, that's the businessy side. I know this is a writing class. <laughs> but I think so. it is interesting to get into the businessy side of things mm -hmm. because it is a mystifying industry that has an investment in making it mystifying you know like yeah. the business of publishing traditionally has been built on the idea that certain people are geniuses uh they just you know create magic out of thin air and they don't even have to do drafts and uh you you know keep that man behind the curtain and meanwhile here put his books out into the world uh, mm -hmm. and make it seem like it's all magic and there's no uh business here we're just doing a service to the universe by publishing this genius's books. Like mm -hmm. there's a whole web of, I mean, it has changed in many ways and we've got information access in the way we never had. Of course, it's good and bad information we have access to now, but um, I think that it does have that smoke screen uh, around it still. And I think it's always worth while to spend a little bit of time demystifying it a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Max though has a more specific question about making a fantasy world, do you ever get overwhelmed with how much extra world building you have to do? And if you mm -hmm. have any tips for world building? Yes, so it, it can be definitely overwhelming. Um, oh, it's also a big question because this, um, when you kind of get into technical writing stuff, every single person is going to have a different way of approaching and tackling it. Um, so for me, um, when I'm thinking of a story, uh, it comes to me very visually and very cinematically in my mind's eye. That's just the way that um, my brain works. Uh, and often it's one scene, characters I don't know in a world that um, you're just kind of seeing snippets of. And you kind of have to remember um, that when you're trying, when you're writing, you're, you are trying to transcribe the things that you see in your mind, but you don't have to provide absolutely every single detail. Um, what you're creating uh, in a book is essentially wallpaper, is essentially a set, um, and you're allowing the reader to backfill 
so that it becomes um, it becomes more dense and you're just kind of suggesting things you're you don't have to this when I was um, early on uh, when I first started out I would get really bogged down um, in planning in developing and you're spending all of that time uh, that could be writing the actual story that's taking place um, so kind of uh, having in your mind your own knowledge of the world um, and allowing some of those details to just come out in the story that takes you know that takes some time um, to develop that skill um, but starting out with very basic things where is this taking place um, what kind of you know you think of things like what kind of climate so kind of climate is occurring here um, what are the resources that people um, are using day to day is there a lack of resources is that part of the story um, you do have to sometimes allow the story to influence what is going on in this fantasy world um, so it's it's such a tough question because uh, <laughs> I do both at the same time I develop the story and then I'm also filling in the world and I'm not sitting there and dumping page after page after page of detail on the reader because that's boring to read and boring to write and exhausting because then you're gonna be like, I'm missing this detail. I need to talk about the geopolitical landscape of what is occurring. And you don't really, you have to kind of remember that um, the world is just where the story is taking place and the story is what is important. So for instance, um, give you an example. So for the stars of Mount Quicks, I just really liked, I really like the aesthetic of like 1940s um, British European, like World War II era. I just like that era. I like the fashion. I like that it's not super technological. So um, any of the situations my characters get into, it'll be low tech. Uh, there'll be, um, there won't be a lot of easy ways out of what they're, the challenges they're currently facing. There'll be large distances they have to travel, um, et cetera. So I liked putting that in. Um, and I also liked the idea of monsters who were really educated and um, just like just creating um, more of an aesthetic than a world. And the world came out of the aesthetic, um, the architecture, the um, just the, the way people talked, things, the things that were important, the way, like the types of entertainment people <laughs> engaged with. Um, there's gonna be, I really like radio. I really like old fashioned radio stuff. So that's gonna feature in a ton of these sequels. Um, but also creating like a layer of what kind of magic would exist in this world. And is it practical magic? Is it kind of over the top magic? You kind of spend, when you're, when you're world building, you're just asking yourself piles of questions. And you're just, you're just basically a, sleuth, a super sleuth and you're sleuthing out your own brain and the things that you like, and you're kind of throwing them at the wall <laughs> and you're saying, this is really interesting. This is way too dense. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are, there are tons of fantasy authors out there who create like this extremely detailed wheel of time, um, mythology worlds. And that's great. It just depends on what level you're comfortable with and what kind of story you want to tell. I personally just like to, here's the story. These are the things that are going on in the background. Um, and like I said, the reader does fill in quite a lot of details and you kind of want that. You want them to engage with it um, and pull their own experiences into what you've created so that they have that experience with your work. Um, so it's a very long convoluted Ouroboros answer to your question. Um, it, it can get overwhelming, but you just kind of have to take a step back sometimes and say, I'm just focusing on the story and how the story moves through this world. Um, and if supplying the details of the environment are important to that moment, I will, but I'll also have the characters talk about what's going on rather than me dumping a bunch of omniscient, this is the world and this is why things are the way they are. And it's more interesting to do it the other way. I always like to ground it uh, in, um, 
Like imagine you had to go to the store and buy a tomato. What do you need to know to get to the store and buy a tomato? Mm -hmm. You need to know where the store is, how far away it is, how are you going to get there? How much, what's the operating hours? How much money is it to buy a tomato? Uh, you got to bring your money with you. You got to go pick it up. You got to lock the checkout, you know, in the, and you know, who's prevent you from buying this tomato. And is yeah. that part of the story? And what is it? You don't need to know who the president is. No. But when, you know, maybe if the reader needs to know that later, then, you know, you run into your friend and start talking about politics for a minute, and then you go get the tomato. You know, uh, you really got to think, I think, about what's the minimum amount of information they need to understand what's happening now or to set up what's going to happen later. Uh, and outside of that, uh, it's just getting in the way of the story, as you say, but you can trickle, find opportunities to trickle that backstory or do these or, or set up things and information and so on. Uh, you bring up real time. It's like, yeah, that's got a really fleshed out, fully realized world, but it's, you know, trickled out over 15,000 pages, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or whatever it is. It's not, um, yeah. it's not like he's spending a thousand pages just telling you about the world and then you know, next book will get something will happen. Yeah. And what's important is that you have all of the, the knowledge inside of you, you like, whether you are sitting and, and I don't, I don't really um, encourage this because this is what kind of bogged me down. You're sitting and you're writing like a world building primer um, for your world. Sometimes that can be a good exercise, but sometimes uh, you can get really obsessive with it. And that is time you could be spending writing your book. Um, so just kind of like create your, your very basic details and know that the primer is inside you. And as you're writing, let some of that knowledge come out, but also treat the, treat the, the moments of you writing as like, you hold all of the info. The reader doesn't really need to know it right all at once, like you said. Um, and you're just kind of allowing it to come through. That sounds like a really airy fairy way, but like, as you get more practice in writing and you're writing something and you're like, ha I'm putting these people in these situations, but I know how this world is and I know how they're going to interact with it. Um, you're basically, you have to take the role of being their guide, but not being like a, like a hologram who is just giving them a very <laughs> like extremely detailed museum tour. Um, I like to work on the assumption that the reader doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> if the reader doesn't care yeah. until you suddenly mm -hmm. make them want the answer to a question. And so mm -hmm. like, yeah, if, if they read your book and they love it, maybe they want a book of just the world's history after, after that point. After, yeah. Um, but it's, un, you know, but even then they probably want a story in there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's when you, when you do eventually, when you, to your great shock, when you meet people who've read your work and uh, they, they tell you, I really just got lost in the world that you built because you did it subtly. You didn't bash them over the head. You were telling the story and they were engaged by the story taking place in the world that you created and they became just immersed in it. Um, like that is like, that's a pretty high, that's pretty high praise to me um, because in the end, it's the people that they're, that they're interested in. Um, and the, the rules of the world is just what they're functioning in. So. What um, are some of your just basic uh, writing practices? Like what are some of the ways that you structure your time or your day when you're working on a big project like that in order to kind of keep moving forward without as you know getting overwhelmed mm -hmm. um it's changed over years um i wrote this book which was book two in my first trilogy i wrote it in 30 days yeah i remember that <laughs> hundred and i can't even remember how many thousands of words it is it's very complicated it's got six character point of views um, that are all taking place simultaneously in different parts of the world. Uh, the Realms of Ancient is a very, it takes place in modern times, but it's overlaid by a mythological magic system that is thousands of years old. And um, it's, it's very complex and it jumps around. 
And the reason I wrote it so quickly was because my publisher just changed deadlines. Instead of giving me a year, they just, they wanted the sequel before the first book came out, which is fine. And I did it. Um, and it took a lot of discipline. And prior to this, my writing style was just sit down and write. I have some visions of scenes in my head and um, I'll write them and I'll make up the connective tissue as I go along. And then a book will eventually pop out and then I'll edit it. For the second book, uh, you have, <clears throat> pardon me, you have characters with established personalities and established goals and um, established conflicts and you have to address them and your characters have to grow and they have to further the plot and there's new conflicts. So in order to keep track of all those, um, I started out by doing the file card method where I would write down a scene on a file card, throw it on the floor, and I would just do that. And then I would rearrange them. That was like the first basic way that I plotted out the second book. Then I just created a Word document. I made up fake chapter titles and I summarized those scenes in each chapter. Um, I had already kind of had a framework built in because this book was split into three parts, uh, part one, part two, part three. And so I, that's kind of, I would do that for the second book. And then I put in the chapters in that about seven to 10 chapters apart. And I would say whose point of view it is, what is happening. Um, so I had that very basic summary. I knew exactly what was going to happen start to finish. That's very helpful when you're on a deadline. And when I would sit down to write it, I didn't write it in order. I would just say, I feel like writing, um, I feel like writing this character scene because I'm feeling it more strongly today. Um, and then I would jump to like part three and write a scene there and jump back to part two. And doing that actually it took the pressure off of feeling that I have so many blank pages in front of me, uh, which is which can be kind of anxiety inducing. Uh, and also I've already written this scene. So I already know what occurs here so that when I come back and write another scene over here that's connective tissue for that, um, I've already got the details. And that really helped just kind of filling in the little blanks. And then a draft was done. And I actually, this came up in my Facebook memories um, when I, we were editing it four years ago now and I had three editors on it and I did have to write a, a world building primer for the editors so that they knew the names of these gods and the powers and the histories so when they were editing it everything was consistent and very shockingly um, it hung together a lot a lot nicer than I thought because I had delay I was in a rush and I was stressed out some days I would write a thousand words some days I'd write ten thousand words um, but it actually, it, it's one of my strongest books because I just kind of sat down and said, if I want to get this right and not even just if I want it to be good, if I want to make sure that the plot, these plot lines are wrapped up or this thing, this important thing is introduced or this makes sense. I have to change my ways. Pantsing is a very, it can be very fun where you're like, I don't even know what's gonna happen. And you're just kind of coming up with things on a whim, but that can get really exhausting when you have a really complicated book. Um, so that has been my process since then, uh, because having, knowing what's ahead, even if it's just very bare details, it is very comforting because then you can, if you step away from that work for a long period, and you come back to it and you're like, oh my God, I have no idea what happens next. I did two years ago when I was working on it. But if you have the plan already laid out and it's just like, well, in this chapter, this is what happens. And you can be like, oh yeah, okay, great. And you can dive right back in. Um, I think that's, that's kind of worked for me. It's not, everyone's, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it allows you to finish, which is very important. Um, I've said this for years now, um, but finish, not perfect, is very important. Um, I'm also, I also box for fun. And the great thing about boxing is the more you do it, the more you develop the muscle memory. So you cannot box for like six months and you put your gloves on 
and you get in your stance at the bag and your body just knows how to jab and knows how to do a hook and it knows what to do because that's all just kind of, you've done it so many times. Finishing a book is, or finishing any kind of writing is the same thing. If you know that you've done it before, you know you can do it again, your brain knows how to develop a story, it knows how to execute it, and you don't feel this huge pressure of, I can't get this done, I can't, I can't finish it, because you're constantly going back and editing um, instead of producing new words. So as long as it's finished, you can go back and you can edit it, but um, it's better for it to be finished and needing work than be forever unfinished sitting in a desk where you don't know what's gonna happen to it. So that's, even if you aren't sure, just finish the damn thing, just do it. <laughs> yeah, my feeling about the pants thing, like writing by the seat of your pants without a real plan versus planning is that, uh, Although pantsing is more fun, I don't see how you can have a career in that manner, like yeah. a real sustainable, consistent career, uh, just because of the time and so on. And, and a really nice thing about the nonlinear writing that you talk about, my life really changed as a writer when I found Scrivener and other writing programs that were designed to allow you to write in a nonlinear manner. So you could very easily jump forward. Uh, and jump back and so on and, and bounce around in a planned out uh, manuscript, even if the plan was just like headings and you didn't know what was going to go on exactly. Uh, but you had like the basic, you know, uh, big beats of the story or whatever. I mean, if you have more details, it, it helps a lot. But I found that even, you know, I, I would get stuck and I would be, and I find this is a problem with a lot of people they'll get stuck where they don't know what to do next, but they know some later thing, but they just have the idea that somehow they have to write linearly. Um, and it takes sometimes people a long time to get out of that idea that you have to write the story in the way that the reader is going to read the story. It just doesn't, mm -hmm. it just isn't true. Um, and if you're ever stuck in a spot, there's almost certainly you can jump to another spot. Uh, you oh, must yeah. know something else that's going to happen in the story, or you can even just make a random decision as and, and come back and fix it later because you don't doesn't need to be perfect, as you say, in, especially in the, in your early mm -hmm. drafts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a real game changer, I think, for people when they start to realize that oh, this is a craft process. Oh yeah, this is an exercise. This is mm -hmm. just it's not you're not sitting down to write a masterwork. You're just kind of putting in the time and going through some paces and using some tools that you've built up over time. And, um, and you know your own, um, you know your own roadblocks and then you kind of have developed ways to get around them. Uh, and you just kind of go for it. Um, in the end, you have to kind of look at writing as a discipline. No one starts out as a good writer. Um, you might inherently have um, a talent or an inclination towards it, but it takes practice and it takes sitting down and, uh, and working on it in order to keep improving and you will keep improving. Um, and you also don't get to be some really great writer by just writing. You have to read what other people are putting out there. You have to expose yourself more to the world. Um, you really have to work on developing empathy. That's actually, um, like one of my number one things that I talk about um, with young writers is you really have to develop that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, not just um, imagine yourself as that person. You also have to imagine yourself um, with all the things they've gone through, with the, the, um, the place they are in their life, um, the choices that they've made that have gotten them to this point the things that they want, the things that they are ashamed of, uh, the, the mistakes they've made. Being a good writer is internalizing all of that and then writing um, as that person. You are basically putting on that person when you're writing. And if you have piles of different characters, you have to be switching and switching and switching and switching. And you have to be thinking of what their intentions are and will they go against their nature? And that all comes from empathy. And you have, to, you have to go out into the world and build that. You can't just build that by sitting in a room with a closed door at a computer. Um, 
you have to you have to live in order to be a good writer too like that's also part of like the toolkit and people are like what course should i take to be an author and it's like the course is get out of your house go have a different experience and analyze the hell out of it as you're experiencing it like and then take that back with you to your little desk um the great writers of hundreds of years ago weren't just sitting uh watching youtube for tutorials um they were out just enjoying the movable feast of paris and all that crap so you know to go out and go out and live that's a big important part of writing don't you find that a lot of the advice too that you will go find on youtube and so on is just wrong mm -hmm. i find that it's just flat out the worst advice you've ever seen give me an example well here i'll give you an example so uh, there's a real movement well here's the, the here's my overall example that is a bit generic but only for me what i find uh, and why I do all my stuff as like writing the wrong way. Uh, what I find is that there is a tendency among a newer writer to want to be like another writer that they admire. Mm -hmm. And they're, or like a professional writer. They have this idea in their head of like, well, a real writer would do it this way. And they try to get closer and closer to like what a real writer does, which is what everybody else is doing. So like if there's a way of writing dialogue or a way of writing description, you know, they'll try to get closer and closer to that. Or if there's a way of telling a story, they try to get closer and closer to that. And what they'll isolate in their journey is they'll be doing certain things wrong. Um, so maybe they're over describing things or maybe their dialogue is too flowery or maybe, you know, uh, their characters uh, kind of lack motivation or whatever it is, right? And they'll work to kind of get to improve those things. And this is the correct path in many respects, but what they'll do often in that process is because they're all looking at the same big models, you know, the big writers who have at the time are really doing well, and they probably maybe even turned them on to wanting to write. And because they're all getting the same advice, what they're all sort of moving towards is a genericness. Uh, and they're actually, as they go along it, uh, they're trying to make their writing more like other people's and they're trying and they're ironing out all the things that make it unique and particular to them because those are the flaws and the things that they're doing badly. And really what I find almost always when you look at a, a really adept, impressive writer, what they've done is they've taken something that another person would consider to be a flaw, like maybe they're writing flowery descriptions, um, and they just find a way to make it work. So instead of abandoning it, like they're being told to, they actually just dive into the thing that is really actually, they're not doing it well, and they're not doing it in a way that is kind of making sense, but there is a way to do that well, and there is a way to make it make sense. Um, and if they can just get there, they'll actually develop a distinctive, unique style, as opposed to having no style. Uh, what mm -hmm. I find is like broadly people are going towards a generic style that where they can't be distinguished from one another. Um, and what they need to find is their quote unquote voice, uh, which I don't like talking about those terms because I think it isn't a ineffable thing. I think it's a craft thing. Um, but uh, I, so like, I, I feel like there's people get that advice, like um, don't, you know, uh, uh, you know, do something and, what I find often is like, that's usually true, but there's a way to do it. Um, like I'm always looking for like, what's the thing everyone's being told not to do? And can you find a way to do it uh, and make it work? And it's hard, uh, mm -hmm. but I think like so often when people lose an interest in writing or quit writing is because the thing that attracted them to it in the first place is something they've been trained out of. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a bit of an abstract uh, example, but um, and then sometimes you'll just find flat out things that don't make any sense. Like uh, somebody will talk about uh, how they should use the word. So like the, the example I always use, if you want a really concrete one is dialogue attribution. So people will uh, say, you know, don't write dialogue with like this flowery attribution where it's like, instead of saying, he said, you know, obliquely, and don't use the adverb, just say, he said. So that's fine advice as it goes, but I think the best advice is don't use any dialogue attribution at all. Mm -hmm. 
because if you don't use any dialogue attribution, you actually have to write dialogue that is uh, sensible for that character uh, and could not be said by another character. Mm-hmm. So it's easier said than done. But I find like the advice that is generally given is actually bad advice because it doesn't address fixing dialogue, which is the real problem. Mm-hmm. Usually, yeah, I think like the answer to that is just exposing yourself to so many different styles uh, because you will see very quickly that there is no right or wrong. There is just clarity and engagement and truth. Like if what you feel you are writing is true, um, you really have to stop thinking about rules. And that is just kind of another thing. It's almost like a, it's like a gatekeeping um tactic that some people maybe don't think that they're employing. You can't be a writer if you write like this, um, which isn't true. Um, That's just someone who's trying to stop other people who are maybe good at the thing they're saying don't do from writing. (laughs) And I don't know why, because everyone has a different story to tell in a different way. And that that rules are dumb. (laughs) I mean, yeah, on one level, I think I get the rules. They make sense. There's a, like, you got to kind of understand what you're doing, you know, uh, to a certain degree before you can kind of start floating all the rules. But I think people forget the rules are just there to give you a framework and mm-hmm. that if you stick to the framework, it, 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 it's like you just framed a house and didn't put walls on it. Like, like, yeah. like it, it, yeah, it's a house, I guess, but I don't know if I want to live there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Kafka didn't even finish his books. And, uh, <laughs> you know, look at that. Look at how yeah, much exactly. influence he managed to have. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got people who can't even, you know, spell a word like Bukowski that have had a massive amount of influence. Yeah. They remind, you know, uh, weird examples where like a person just comes along and starts writing something that nobody cares about. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, becomes a big uh, hit in some way. Yeah. People forget about the vampires, you know, vampires were dead. And then, you know, those books came along. Yeah. And not that I'm a big fan of them, but, you know, it is just another kind of really simple example of you can just be out of step with the marketing and the publishing world and still be right mm-hmm. um, or wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, you don't know uh, until you've sunk years of your life into it. Um. Sam, do you have any kind of final advice or final thoughts for people who, you know, are maybe uh, uh, trying to decide on what to write, you know, uh, because a question I have see a lot and uh, a kind of common theme of a lot of questions that people submitted here where, you know, what do you do if you just aren't sure of your idea or aren't sure whether you should be investing time in this particular thing versus this other thing, you know, or, uh, you know, how do you kind of select an idea that you want to spend, you know, five books writing about, uh, mm-hmm. say, yeah, when you I mean, could I, be doing other things that now you can't think, do. Yeah. I think it comes down to, um, it, it, this might sound like an alchemical decision, but whichever you feel the most excited about is probably the story, um, that you should be working on. Don't think about trends. Don't think about money. <laughs> Don't think about this is the book that's going to get me a publishing deal or win me an award. Um, you really have to want to write it and be super into it and become like the super fan of this one idea because that's what, that's the momentum that carries you into writing five books, into writing three books, into even writing one, even finishing one. You have to be. You have to just be super obsessed with your characters and what they're doing and they're telling their story because you're the only one who can do it. No one else is going to. Um, And that is kind of what drives you. Um, If you're really kind of feeling like, oh, I'm not really feeling this idea, but it's a good idea. Like I said at the start, just keep it, put it away. And once you are done with the one thing you're su- you're more pumped about, you can always come back to it. And maybe you'll have a completely different perspective that can make it better. Um, so no idea is that you've created is time lost. Um, I don't really think that um, being worried about, oh, I might waste too much time writing this and I don't really know where it's gonna go. I don't really believe in that because that's not time wasted. Anytime creating anything, even if it doesn't end up being finished at that moment, it's not wasted because then you can parlay it 
uh, 13 years later into five books, <laughs> which is what the stars of Mount Quicks, the one that's coming out in 2023, that's what happened with it. I said, I was really, I liked the idea, but I'm not really super excited about it right now. I'm excited about writing this other thing. And I did that thing and I became a better writer. And when I came back to Quicks, I created the ideas for five books to come out of it. So, you know, nothing ever ends. Well, thanks so much, uh, Sam, for making the time to talk to me and uh, for, having for me. that great advice uh, for everyone listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, hope you're, ex you're really uh, plowing into that uh, <laughs> five book thing with a vengeance. Sure am. <laughs> <laughs>